I'm Paul Brady, regional editor at The Cork Report, and this is my podcast, A Northern Wine Odyssey, part of The Cork Report Podcast Network. To listen, search Cork Report in Google or your podcast app of choice. In today's episode, I speak to Finger Lakes winemaker and musician Kelby Russell of Red Newt Cellars and KJR, Kelby James Russell. We talk mostly about music in this episode. Kelby and I have had a correspondence over many years now talking probably actually mostly about music, although we do uh, touch on the subject of wine toward the end of the podcast, and there are some, there's a little bit sprinkled in there throughout the episode. But this is mainly a music episode, which is a lot of fun for me to, to branch out and be able to do every once in a while. So I hope you enjoy it. And just a quick word about Open Local Wine Night. Most local wineries, wherever local is for you, are hanging on through the pandemic. Through a combination of loyal wine club members, online orders, and a big dose of creativity, they've been able to stay afloat over the past 10 months when their tasting rooms were either closed or significantly restricted. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a lover of local wines, and the wineries that make the wines we all love need our help. The team at Cork Report Media and I hope that you'll join us wine lovers across the country on April 10th, 2021 for Open Local Wine Night, a celebration of exactly that, local wine. It's easy to participate. Just buy some local wine, open it on April 10th, and post a picture on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook with all the hashtags that you like to use wherever local wine is for you. And of course, hashtag open local wine. It's really as easy as that. And if you're a winery that would like to participate, please visit thecorkreport.us to register. We'll see you on April 10th. And I got to say, there are so many good deals out there right now in terms of open local wine night. This is this definitely proves to be the best one yet. I've seen incredible deals that include shipping or at very reasonable flat rate shipping from wineries like Wagner, uh, Nathan Kendall, Osmote, uh, Ian Berry, uh, I should say Berry Family Cellars, uh, and so many more. So get onto the Facebook site or Google Open Local Wine and you're sure to find all the info that you need. Should be a fun night. Okay, here we go with Kelby. Northern Wine Odyssey, or today, as I'm calling it, a Northern Music Odyssey. Thank you, as always, to Dave Miller for opening and closing music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com or wherever you purchase or stream music. With me on the podcast today is winemaker and fellow musician Kelby Russell of the Finger Lakes of Red Newt Wine Cellars. Kelby James Russell and winemaker at large. Kelby, what's up? Not too much. How are you, Paul? I'm doing fine. Uh, as we as we kind of just uh, caught up a for a minute or two there before getting into the podcast. Exciting week for me. Received uh, my my liquor license, so I'll be able to uh, keep on uh, moving forward with the business. Yeah, that's always great. <laughs> that's always great, right? It's uh, it, it's. It takes a village to get that thing. Yeah, that's a good way to start spring as well. Yes, we are feeling spring pretty hard down here in the Hudson Valley. 
uh, signs of of spring alive and and well in along Seneca Lake? Surprisingly, yes. I mean, normally we'd still be covered in some amount of snow right now, but uh, we've got our Siberian irises up. We've got uh, you know daffodils and helibores going. Uh, I wouldn't say it's green yet, but we're getting there. Are wineries starting to sort of gradually shift into 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 go time up there in terms of getting ready for the season? Yeah, I mean we've got uh, we've we've entered bottling season pretty hard, and then everyone is scrambling to staff up. I mean, last year uh, was kind of a bumper year for tourists in the Finger Lakes, so we're trying to figure out how to be ready to serve all those people again this time around. It's going to happen, um, maybe even in uh, greater numbers this year. I was v- up there for all of less than 24 hours a week or two ago, and looking for a house to rent proved nearly impossible in the month of March. I was able to find something, but I had to had to put the bat signal out. And what I was told by by friends and and peers up there is that pretty much the whole summer is already booked like everything all the houses are rented so that's promising yeah i mean we're oscar and i are working on uh you know fl excursion 2.0 here in 2019 uh, or well 2019 was the first one this will be 2021 uh, amazing how quickly i forgot about 2020 but in any case uh and getting hotel rooms and everything booked we're like oh no one will really be planning for this july yet and boy that is just not the case people are out in full force i know it's uh it is nice to see though i I will say i mean i had a i had a nice pleasant winter but uh i'm enjoying seeing people uh out in uh indulging in the agritourism um up there and, and down here in the hudson valley so let's uh Let's get into our conversation today. I've been looking forward to this. I want to start by asking you when, if you can recall, was the first time, and we're we're here to talk about music primarily today, and and we'll make that clear in when I record an introduction and and whatever social media blurbs that we put out. I want to, I want to know when you sort of took it upon yourself to become the music fan that you are today. So maybe a little bit more specifically, we we talk a bit about jazz, a bit about pop music, a bit about classical music. I feel like we all we all like pop music from from when we're even little kids. But when did you use your own money, use your own time to first either take yourself to a show or buy some music that would fall into the classical or jazz genres? Yeah, for me, it would be when I used my own time, by and large. Uh, I grew up uh, in a, a house that loved music, but uh, when I was growing up, it was mostly country music, uh, if not overwhelmingly country music. And I think like so many young people do, uh, you kind of like rebel against what your parents are listening to, whether you realize you're doing that or not, uh, or want to go as far in the opposite direction. Uh so I kind of picked up classical when I was in, I don't know, second or third grade, uh, just as like a, it like came across the radio station 91.5 in Rochester uh, and really liked it. Thought the music was kind of kooky and interesting and totally different than what I was used to uh, and kind of just fell down the rabbit hole there. You know, I, I, growing up like an hour outside of Rochester, there wasn't 
that much in the way of concerts to go to uh, other than band. Uh, so I immediately got into band when I was in fourth grade and kind of went down this classical saxophone rabbit hole for the rest of my my I know, education through high school. So, yeah, it's not the not a typical story. <laughs> I don't think that I knew that. So you played classical sax from sounds like elementary school and through high school. Yeah, that was that was far and away my musical outlet. Uh, and I, you know, in, ja- or in high school, I and end of middle school, I should say, I picked up jazz as well. It's hard not to with the saxophone, uh, alto sax in my case. So that was uh, they were kind of dueling tracks. I mean, it's kind of a shame that at least at that point it felt like, and certainly when you're getting into an instrument, it's almost like you're shoehorned into having to pick a track, right? Like whether it's not that it was conservatory in elementary school in upstate New York, but you know, you're kind of meant to either go down a classical path or a jazz path. Uh, and I loved them both uh, and loved the instrument. Yeah. That's almost very similar, uh, to what happens to some of us in, in the, in the guitar world, classical guitar might even be a step ahead of classical sax, but it is such that we come up with a little bit of a chip on our shoulders, um, or just have some jealousy of the other other musicians and the attention that gets paid uh, toward other instruments. Um, but I, that might even be more intense for the sax because, like, there are those classical guitar superstars that sort of started with Andre Zagovia and John Williams and Julian Bream and all that, who are sort of household names in the classical music world. But like classical saxophone, that that's a bit of a tough one, especially because you have to compete with like the titans of jazz in terms of. Who has the, who owns the virtuosity of the instrument? Exactly, and there's just not as much repertory for it, right? Like there's there's some classical saxophone music out there, but oftentimes you're talking about more contemporary compositions, uh, which, as we all know, is the the death knell of classical music, right? Like nothing clears out an an audience faster than uh, saying, "And now for a new composition," right? It's it's worse than a, a band saying, "We're going to play something from our new record." Totally. Um, I feel like, let's see, Villalobos has a saxophone concerto and maybe Glazanov. Am I getting the repertoire right? Yep. I mean, it, it's that there's, you know, there's a fair bit of uh, French repertoire. And then there's a lot of sort of, uh, I don't know, redone things for like cello, right? Like you see a lot of things like that. The, the saxophone is given the cello lead or, or something like that. So it's That's funny. Uh, that, that, that happens in guitar too. It's like, all the Bach cello suites are typically transposed to play on the guitar. And I got to say, they, they really do sound better on the guitar. It's just more of a contrapuntal instrument. Um, Although he would, he was writing some of those also for the lute back then. So I always tell people, I'm like playing that repertoire on the guitar today is no different from a pianist playing Bach on a piano. Exactly. Yeah. Now it's, it's funny how that sort of like retrofitting actually ends up creating some fascinating, uh, challenges and opportunities for the instrument, right? Like playing the saxophone, like a cello uh, is not easy, but it, you know, it results in a a totally different understanding of a wind instrument. And so were you taking private lessons as well as playing in bands throughout school? Yeah, I took uh, private lessons in middle school and high school. uh, And uh, in New York state, the big thing is solo fest that happens a couple times a year uh, where you go and present like a prepared solo to an adjudicator and there's, you know, sight reading and all those sorts of like technical 
things. And that's what determines whether you get into sort of the all state and all county bands uh, and kind of just marks out where you are in terms of your, your relative talent. So I would spend inordinate amounts of time preparing for those. You know, it was like, it was worse than a final exam. And so did you take it as far as like, did you, did you go to summer music camp or do any of that stuff or consider at all auditioning on sax to get into music programs for college? Never really considered auditioning for college. Uh, I knew that I was headed towards uh, one way or another, like a good liberal arts school and a good music program was going to be part of what I wanted, but it was never going to be, at least at that point, it wasn't what I thought the the main part of my education was going to be. And at some point you're, you're also a singer. So when, when did that, when did you start taking that seriously? I am when I got to college for the most part. I mean, I, I got into singing. I was singing all through elementary and high school, middle school as well in choir uh, on, you know, I loved doing the annual musical, right? I was always uh, one of the people on the stage for the musical. Uh, and when I got to college at Harvard, you know, they had, I mean, Harvard has an amazing jazz program, uh, but the caliber of talent to get into that jazz program, just as like, especially if you weren't in the music department, if you're just kind of a casual person was, uh, it was just not going to be possible. Uh, there wasn't really an opportunity for that. And they do have a wind ensemble. Uh, so there was a saxophone opportunity there, but the wind ensemble wasn't taken super seriously. Uh, not as seriously as I would have wanted for kind of the skill level I was coming in with. So uh, at the same time as I was auditioning for those things and piecing together the the harsh reality of saxophone at college, uh, I got into a classical men's choir, uh, and that really satisfied the sort of artistic and uh, I know the artistic like creative side and also the artistic challenge side of like pushing myself further. So I'm curious to know what your musical social life was like in in and around Boston during that time. Yeah, I, lots of live shows. Um, a lot of shows right on Harvard's campus, which is not surprising, right? Both uh, friends and like, there's just so much kind of burbling in that Cambridge scene uh, that was just a constant delight to to experience and people doing crazy things that you'd never heard of before. Yeah, it's it's funny. I ha I'm fairly certain that these clubs are in that area. So when I was playing jazz professionally, the the two places that we played regularly in Boston were Scholars and the Regatta Bar, both which were in hotels, I think around Cambridge. Am I am I getting that right? Yeah, you're correct. Both of them I were know, uh, I don't know Boston that well. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. I mean, uh, does anyone really? Uh, it's it, the the roads are so crazy. Uh, but yeah, with the Regatta Bar is uh, that's right in Harvard Square, uh, and I certainly saw a fair number of shows there. It was kind of crazy. The you know uh, the the people who would show up there with relatively minimal fanfare. <laughs> it's so funny because those are those two venues I liked playing because once you've been on the road for a minute, you <laughs> you. You certainly come to appreciate when the performance is under the same roof of where you're going to sleep that night. And I, and I just remember being at the Regatta Bar after this, which is a pretty nice hotel, the Charles Hotel, I believe it's called. 
which That's has a right. couple of, yeah, it has a couple of restaurants and a bar and and that was always just relaxing because you would arrive, check in, do a sound check, able to eat a good dinner. And then like when your show's over, you walk like I remember I swear I walked like 30 feet to my room or something like that and it was quiet and it was just that was cool. And then I I remember <laughs> again after you've been on the road for a minute and you're performing in these types of spots, you realize uh that oftentimes the band are put up in rooms that are that are not exactly a list. So I can just remember taking the elevator in the hotel where Scullers was and there were five of us in the band and all five of our rooms were stacked on top of each other. And they were the rooms that as soon as you exit the elevator, you would walk straight into that door. So they were like those like, you know, rooms that you get on Priceline at a discount. I was, yeah, I was going to say, it's the, right it's by the, the elevator. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, this is like something that like Steve Carell in the office would be like, uh, only, only the only the best treatment for uh, Dunder Mifflin employees. Like, as soon as you get out of the elevator, <laughs> you know your your yeah. room is right there. Uh, yep, yeah, that's it's exactly right. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean the Charles Hotel would have been a, a great one to stay at. Uh, it's funny as a as a student in Cambridge, the regatta bar always felt kind of closed off even for jazz shows you know both because of i mean you know the the age of being able to drink alcohol but it was also tried to set it out self out as more of a professional space and less of like a spot students would feel comfortable in yeah it was it was definitely a little swanky um and yeah good times there i was actually massachusetts was where i came to the (laughs) decision that i would no longer be a professional musician after that particular tour uh, was when I put my notice in. It wasn't in Boston. It was somewhere like out in the Berkshires at some performing arts center. And I just remember like the day I was in my room doing like some sort of YouTube CrossFit kind of routine and just absolutely miserable. And like in the middle of a set of, you know, some squats or something like that, I was like, that's it. When I, I'm done. When I, when I get back, I'm putting my notice in. And that was early, I believe early 2013. And then, and whatever we had in the books sort of leading up to the summer, I said, I'll cover those shows and and then I'm done. And then, then it was wine ever since. So, okay. I want to, I want to also, I I have to to ask, were you like, what was your, were you dovetailing into wine at that point? Uh, Was this something that was, yeah, a little bit. I um I when I moved to New York City in 2008, you know how you as a musician when you move to New York, there's there's kind of two ways to look at it. One is you can be absolutely terrified of the city and this is this is the way that I recommend that you be because it's a very difficult city to live in for anyone. Not for the if you're a billionaire it's still difficult to live in New York. It's just a challenging city, so you really have to love it. You can't you shouldn't move to New York if you don't love New York City for 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 all that it is. Um, and then there's another way to look at it, which was if you're a young musician, jazz in particular, and you're like, "Am I good enough to go to New York? Can I make it in New York?" I remember the the late trumpet player Marcus Belgrave once said, "Hey man, F seven's no different in New York than it is in Detroit." And so you know there 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 were. There, there's different reasons that people move to New York, but I arrived in New York with that sort of terrified feeling. 
And I said to myself, I, I had been teaching a lot of guitar lessons in Chicago and Detroit, and I was really burnt out on doing that. I didn't want to do that anymore. So I said, you know what? If I get to New York and this music thing doesn't work out, I literally remember having this conversation with myself in my head. I said, I will stock shelves with bottles of wine at a wine shop before I ever teach another guitar lesson. And so it was kind of like I had planted the seed because I was starting to enjoy wine and take it a bit more seriously, started to read a, read some of the books just so I could enjoy it a little bit more. And then in 2012 was when I sort of made the leap. And, I'm sorry, 2011, I, I took a part-time job at Brooklyn Winery working there as a bar back just, just for something to do. Because I would sometimes go through periods of weeks or even a month where I didn't have to go out and gig on the road with the band that I was in at the time. And so that was, they were flexible with my schedule and it was just something that I enjoyed. And it, it ended up being a nice entrance into the service industry in New York. And then I just continued to become more and more interested in wine and less and less interested in being a musician until I finally um, was able to apply and, and get a position at Terroir Wine Bar. And then I was like, okay, I can do this for real. I'm starting to, I'm really falling out of love with being a musician and I have this job at Terroir. I'm going to go full-time. So that, that was that. That's how that went. Yep. No, I love, I love that story. So, okay. Along as you're in college and you are, you're performing in, in the Harvard Glee club and taking in the music scene that is Boston, are you also starting to drink wine and become interested in wine? Um, initially not all that much. Uh, I mean, I was always really into food growing up. Like I loved, uh, nerdier cooking shows. And that was just like a, an interesting outlet for me that I didn't think of it as much else other than a hobby. Uh, and then in college I got into microbrew beers, uh, pretty early on one. Cause they're, I mean, they're just more accessible. It was easier to get your hands on them as maybe, or maybe not underaged people uh they're also less expensive than wine so that you know the barrier to entry is less uh but loved loved exploring that world and then uh kind of fell into wine almost by accident uh about i don't know two-thirds of the way through college so just to 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 backtrack a little bit uh i'm curious to know what your what kinds of music classes that you took at Harvard, what were you able to take for credit there? And what, what were, there must've been some incredible music lectures at that place. Oh yeah. No, there, there were uh, tons of great music courses you could take. Um, I think the two that stick out to me, uh, Ingrid Monson did one on jazz history. Uh, that was, uh, you know, a, was a little bit surface level, but was also just, uh, amazing. And, you know, the, the, performances she lined up as part of the class and you know now it makes me laugh to think about people grumbling that they were going to have to go listen to you know jerry allen perform right like this is part of the class requirement uh, and meanwhile these things are just kind of like dropping out of the sky during that class uh, as well as like lectures on stage so uh, that was certainly a special one uh, and then there is an amazing one on basically classical music from beethoven to now uh, which included my uh, probably my all-time favorite lecture, which was about Wagner, uh, which I'll never 
never forget, you know, this like really nuanced and detailed handling of, of everything about him and his legacy, which, uh, you know, re- relates to many aspects of just about everything in the world in, <laughs> and how we, how we deal with these uh, cultural touchstones. Do you remember, perchance, who, who the instructor of that class was? So you mentioned Ingrid Monson. Certainly, I remember when I was in graduate school for music history at Rutgers, some of her published articles were required reading. Um, who, was, who were teaching some of these other courses? I'm going to pull up the I, – I want to get the name right for uh, the classical one because uh, that was – uh, music one B. What a great name, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, in general, uh, I'm sort of just curious also, like how important at a place like Harvard were the, the legacies and reputations of some of the just Titans of classical music who spend a lot of time in Boston, like Leonard Bernstein and Elliot Carter or Kusevitsky, people like that. Yeah, not as not as much as you would have expected. Yeah, Sean Gallagher was the professor. That's right for uh, the, okay. the Beethoven to the present, uh, uh, and he was again just an amazing speaker. You know, uh, there's there's professors that are you know come in with crazy amounts of credits for their their published work and things like that, uh, which I'm sure he's also great at. But there are also professors that are just amazing teachers, and he was one of those. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know the the sorts of connections to uh, to the Harvard alum scene or the, or the, not even the alum scene, people who just happened to be in Boston, uh, never seemed particularly active. Uh, it almost seemed like something that existed in a, a separate sphere from what was happening at college, uh, or what was happening at Harvard, which is a bit of a shame. I mean, it's, uh, there were, there were some exceptions to that. I mean, I remember, going to the private reception when we gave the Harvard arts medal to uh, John Adams when he came to to campus. So that was great. And, you know, he was, a, he was an alum, but uh, those moments were fewer and farther between. And I mean, there, obviously you have Berkeley college of music, New England conservatory sucking up the time of, of a lot of these Boston area musicians, no doubt. Um, so, what were now I, I know that at some point you you got serious about really considering a career it, per, specifically in performing arts management and, and you made it down the interview path quite a ways for for a prestigious job that we'll talk about. How did you start becoming interested in that and and you know why you why why did someone like you uh, have have a shot at that? Yeah, I mean the the real Flashpoint for all this goes back to the Glee Club. Uh, you know the Glee Club, which uh, you know I now like hesitate to say Glee Club because everyone thinks of the show, uh, which uh, I've actually never seen, but I'm, I'm hear great things about. It. But in any case, the Glee Club was a student-run organization. Uh, the not the not the conducting side, not the music side. The music side was a professional conductor, uh, Jim Marvin, while I was there, is a legend. Uh, and, and just recently retired, but the, the Glee Club was student run throughout its whole history from the management side and was very proud of that, very proud of both conducting its own affairs and very proud that it had quite the legacy of people who went on to do great things in, in the arts world, arts management world. Uh, so 
uh, for me, it was that freshman freshman uh, fall. You know, like you immediately, they kind of have this. They open up the position of stage manager, which is basically lead sucker because it's your job to get there first every day and get the stage set up, the uh, the chair set up, and the conductor's music ready to go. But it's almost like a, a test to see how serious you are if you're interested. And then, you know, quickly after that, I got uh, started going up the the leadership ladder at the Glee Club. Uh, and my big break was that uh, going into sophomore year, I was uh, appointed tour manager for what was going to be our 150th anniversary tour in 2008. So it was going to be this, you know, eight, 10 week long extravaganza across the U.S., uh, normally our summer tours would be international. This one, the idea was to bring the Glee Club to all of its alumni to celebrate the anniversary. Uh, and, you know, you, you plan it from scratch. Uh, there's no no template there. Uh, you'd kind of pick the cities. You'd re- figure out where you wanted to perform, figure out where to stay. You know, everything from the ground up was uh, entirely in the hands of the manager to, to piece together. So, it's a, I mean, it was... You know, my parents joke that what I actually majored in at college was Glee Club because and there's no question I spent the vast majority of my time while I was at college, either working on this tour or I was actual just manager of the group for a year uh, and then was president of the group, which is, you know, an elected position that's less management related. It's more like being president of the board. uh, But that's what I did my senior year. Uh, So that was all kind of I don't even want to say percolating in the background. That was like the foreground of my entire Harvard experience was getting deeper and deeper into Glee Club management uh, and loving every minute of it. I think that's the key thing to say. Like I absolutely adored the group, adored the music and loved the sort of creative challenge of some of those uh, management pieces. I can relate to that a hundred percent. I mean, I think about, my music education all the time, probably every day still. My friends make fun of me because I, I jokingly sort of suggest that we all <laughs> – uh, I even did this once in the before times and I would do it again – is to get a crew to go back to Chicago to like go to one of the DePaul University orchestra concerts, which were a really big deal. One of the associate conductors of the Chicago Symphony was the music director and it was – I just – I mean I – I think of my time at music school at DePaul a little bit like when Harry Potter enters Hogwarts, like having just not really fit in before and then entering this just incredible place that you just felt like you belonged right away. So I I totally get that you completely immersed yourself in that. And it sounds like it was a very good hands-on management learning tool for you. So did you okay, okay? So let's talk about that job. So the job in question was, uh, what was it? Was it touring manager for for Jazz at Lincoln Center? Yeah, it was for their. They had a program with the State Department where they would send small ensembles out, almost as like uh, soft diplomacy uh, to different parts of the world. Uh, so it was one of the the tour manager for that program, basically uh, of sending these small groups. Uh, out into the world from the U.S. So what was that interview process like for you? Because I'm curious because I also interviewed uh, for an artistic coordinator position with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Um, this was way back before I had moved to New York and was just working as a 
musician around Chicago and Detroit. And I, I, I had a, a phone interview and then an in-person interview obviously did not get the job. And I just remember <laughs> years later when the band I was in, uh, we were programmed to, to play on the subscription series at Orchestra Hall in Detroit. And I remember meeting the, the artistic coordinator at the time and, and saying to her, your job is something that I really wanted once upon a time. Must be really hard. I didn't make it past the second interview. Yeah, it's it. That's kind of how I look back on it now. I mean, I it, all through college, I was kind of picking up more and more. Uh, obviously, the Glee Club experience was huge. Uh, I was doing tons of that uh, in my day to day life. Uh, but at the same time, in you know, in between sophomore and junior year, I went and did a created an internship at the Royal Philharmonic at Liverpool. So I was, uh, you know, working for free in Liverpool. Uh, I got very skinny that summer because I couldn't afford anything other than stir-fried greens from Tesco. Uh, But, you know, loved the work. And then junior to senior year uh, was the the big tour that I'd spent, you know, my entire college career planning. Um, And then... Uh, all through senior year, I was doing, I was in some ways being groomed by people who were in the Glee Club and had become, you know, one had become the manager of the New York Phil back in the 90s, Nick Webster, uh, and he was a big mentor for me. And there were people with the American Symphony Orchestra League, as it was then named before they realized that uh, asshole is not the best of uh, acronyms to have and changed themselves to League of American Orchestras. Uh, and then uh, I was doing seminars. I was going down to New York City, I would say once a month for different seminars that they were and master classes about like how to get into orchestra management and those sorts of things. Uh, so I thought, you know, I, I, I knew it was a bit of a reach for the jazz at Lincoln Center job, but I was it was exactly what my experience had been with the Glee Club. Uh, and I had, you know, this great uh, wealth of seminar experience and kind of practical uh, uh interaction with the the apparatus of the professional arts world at that point to give it a crack. I mean, so I imagine your, I mean, that your life would have been completely different, obviously, had you got, got that job and you would have moved to New York city. Yeah. Yeah. Without question. I mean, I, I thought all through, I mean, growing up in the Finger Lakes, I thought for sure that I was going to, you know, I'd go to college and whatever I ended up doing, I was never going to come back to the Finger Lakes. I was going to be on an East Coast city the rest of my life. Uh, and then in college, like my dream was to do something with the BSO and live on Boston Common, you know, down the down the road. Uh, and that that seemed like the direction I was headed, if not or, or you know, New York City for a while as well. But uh, something like that for sure. So that was really the inflection point for me was uh, giving that. Uh, jazz at Lincoln Center job a crack and seeing what what was going to come of it. And so I'm curious, just because going going to the Detroit Symphony was a part of my upbringing. My dad had a subscription Thursday nights, um, and this was in the 90s. So the there was a at that time the orchestra was was thriving. They they had a, a very famous music director in uh, Nami Yarvi from Estonia. And uh, must have had a nice endowment at that time. And that, that made a pretty big impact on me, certainly. Did you attend many symphony concerts in Boston? Yeah, I was uh, the, the Glee Club actually had a, like an endowed fund that uh, got a subscription to the BSO every year and would 
I'm trying to, I can't remember what subscription it would have been. It's for like Thursday nights. Uh, and it would kind of roll through the membership of the Glee Club who was eligible to take one of the two tickets. Uh, so I got to go to quite a few that way uh, and just, you know, was um, loved it. I mean, you know, that, that concert hall is amazing. The orchestra is amazing. Uh, and the Glee Club, you know, historically had been uh, an incredibly important music organization in the U.S. Uh, in the kind of like from the just after World War One until probably the 1970s. Uh, it was the choir, basically, for the BSO. Uh, did a lot of things with being the debut for uh, oh, like Oedipus Rex and things like this, Stravinsky pieces. Uh, you know, it was the Glee Club that was the the choir that was doing that, along with the sister choir at, at Radcliffe, uh, if it was a mixed piece. Uh, so this, this orchestral tradition was something that was really a key part of being in the glee club, you know, even if it wasn't quite as active when I was there anymore, but you know, you can, you, you had alumni come and talk about like these crazy late night parties they would have with Leonard Bernstein. Cause he had been the accompanist of the glee club and would always like come back to town and play with them. And uh, it was, uh, you know, just something that suffused the air. Do you remember who was the music director of the, of the BSO at the time? Was it, was it Seiji Ozawa? Uh, when I was there, yeah, I'm trying uh, to remember. So that had been sometime like the early 2000s. No, I w- it was mid 2000s. It's got to be. It must have been Levine. Levine, right? yeah. By yeah. then, it was Levine. You're right. Who is a, a subject for another day? Um, speaking of, I, speaking of Wagnerian complexities. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I I only saw the Boston Symphony once. It was a great concert. I, I it was in New York. It was they were doing Carnegie Hall. And I was studying music journalism in graduate school, and I attended with my teacher, who Alan Cozen, who was then one of the one of the classical critics for the New York Times. And it was it was meant to be Levine conducting, but he had to back out uh, for one of the many physical injuries that he had acquired throughout his life. And Lauren Mazel stepped in last minute, and I remember it was a very good concert i i'm racking my brain right now i want to say it was an all beethoven no i think it was two of the symphonies um maybe like the the third and the sixth or something like that i would have to go back and and i'm sure i wrote a review for for school Um, but i remember the orchestra just sounding different in particular from the detroit symphony who i grew up with and it's i just can hear that sound in that the Boston sound was very transparent. I felt like I could hear every single individual instrumentalist in the orchestra. And that was kind of their thing. And and Carnegie Hall lends itself in particularly well to that sound. It's a very, it's a nice wet acoustic. Whereas you take an orchestra, an American orchestra like that, put them in a hall, like uh, not Avery Fisher anymore. David Geffen hall, I believe where the, where the Phil plays the New York Phil. That's a tough hall. Anytime anybody makes a mistake, you hear it. I just, I, I, my heart goes out to those musicians. Um, yeah, but Carnegie <laughs> that's, Hall, a, that's, a, that's a brutal. Hall. <laughs> Carnegie Hall was perfect for the Boston sound, uh, and that was that was the one and only time I ever saw them. And I've yet to make it to Tanglewood. Have you spent much time there? I embarrassingly have never done Tanglewood either. The only thing, uh, the only equivalent I've had, I, the Glee Club actually performed at Ravenna when we were in. Uh, in Chicago for that summer tour. So I've made it to the Chicago iteration and never to the Boston one. That's a fun venue, Ravinia. Yeah. I mean, I will 
many concerts there throughout uh, throughout my undergrad. Um, so I'm curious how, if at all, much do you think about your music education and your sort of quick cup of coffee into into considering that as your full-time profession? Do you think about that not at all? Do you think about it every day or somewhere in between? I guess I think about it every day insofar as um, music is still such a fundamental part of who I am and what I think about uh, and uh, the skills I learned kind of managing the Glee Club have never, you know, they've, they, they are remarkably useful in the wine industry. You know, they're, it's not like some oblique connection. Uh, they're one-to-one relatable. So, you know, I don't, I don't often think like, oh man, uh, you know, the counterfactual of like, what if I'd got that jazz at Lincoln Center job? Uh, that doesn't usually cross my mind anymore. Uh, but the sorts of things that I picked up in learning how to deal with, you know, orchestra management or even glee club management. Uh, my joke is that it feels remarkable. You know, managing musicians is uh, basically about as uh, useful as trying to manage ferments. Like you actually have no control over either of these things. And the better you are at accepting that, the better you are at actually managing them. So I know it's, it's, probably relatively easy for most people to, to Google you and to find information about your start in, in the wine world. So we don't, we don't need to cover that in, in great detail. Cause I, I, while I have you here, I'm sort of more curious to, to chat music, but give us the quick version um, in terms of, you know, that moment where, where you know that you love wine and that you, you could really make that your life. Yeah, I, they're they're intimately connected uh, for me. I didn't I don't get to talk about it in this level of detail all that often, uh, or at least with the background context of where I was musically. But basically, after that uh, summer tour, I won a fellowship to travel to Italy, uh, and I had applied for it with the conceit that I wanted to explore Italy through its sort of food and wine culture, which was. You know, now isn't that crazy of a thing to say, but in the mid 2000s was a little bit out there when they expected most people people to apply for, I don't know, to go study the art or the history or many more noble pursuits, quote unquote. Uh, so I think I won it just because of the sheer like bravado of my application. Uh, and I stretched, it was just a straight stipend and I stretched the stipend by working uh, at a winery in the south of Tuscany in exchange for my, you know, room and board, uh, there at the, at the estate. Uh, and you know, that was the, that was the moment for me. It was like that thing that wormed into my head and I was like, wow, I really like, I'm, I, there's something about this that speaks to me, uh, and really is feeling true and real in a way that even arts management doesn't quite, uh, and obviously from there I went back and was going through the whole process senior year of, you know, trying to figure out whether I was going to get into orchestra management, going through the seminars. And like, there was always this thing scratching at the back of my mind. And I started doing wine seminars at the same time, especially senior spring, learning more and more about the wine industry. And, uh, you know, the, the real short story at that point is I got the call that they'd went with an internal candidate at jazz at Lincoln center. And the next day I showed up on the crush pad at Fox run. Uh, and it, happened to be their first day of harvest 2009 and they were bringing in Chardonnay 
and uh, the rest was history. You know, I was I was ready to throw myself in at that point. That's actually where we met. I don't know if you remember that. It was 2012. It was the first time that I had ever visited the Finger Lakes as an adult. And I had an appointment at, uh, I was working at Terroir at the time and had an appointment at Fox Run with Peter. And you just happened to randomly be stopping by for something. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, I was at Fox Run for uh, three years. And then I was doing the Southern Hemisphere traveling winemaker thing. And then after the 2012 uh, Southern Hemisphere harvest, so spring 2012, uh, I returned and was uh, got hired at Red Newt as the assistant winemaker at that point. And the joke was Red Newt and Fox Run and Anthony Road, you know, they make the collaborative wine tiers together. They're, the winemakers have always been really close friends. So it was always a joke that I got traded for draft picks to be named later uh, and ended up at Red Newt right afterwards. Uh, so yeah, I would have been like just swinging through Fox Run because that was still in some ways felt like home to me, even though I was working at Red Newt. Yeah. And on that same trip, I, it might've even been the night before that or two nights before that I had dinner with Dave at Red Newt, which I mean, to this day, I'll never forget that the first, that first jaunt into the Finger Lakes as I, I mean, I wouldn't back then would never have called myself a sommelier. I felt like I was a server at Terroir Wine Bar. The only sommelier by name was Paul Greco at that time, but going to the Finger Lakes even even just uh, as a, a a humble server in that organization, I I did make appointments through through wine reps. So there 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 was that connection um, that someone from Terroir was coming, and it was sort of funny. Uh, red carpet really everywhere I went because we had such a large riesling program, and obviously that's. Um, the important grape of the region. And the, the funniest <laughs> moment in particular, I visited four wineries on that trip, Red Newt, Heart and Hands, Silver Thread, and Fox Run. And each were important to me for different reasons. But it, it, was, it was funny showing up to Silver Thread because when I got there, uh, Shannon Brock sort of welcomed me at the door and informed me that she's like, I just put this together and realized that you are Paul from Terroir, but you are not Paul Greco from Terroir. And Paul Greco had, believe it or not, never visited the region at that time. And she was like, now my husband, also Paul, Paul Brock, thinks that it's Paul Greco who's showing up right now. And she's like, I'm not going to tell him. I'm just going to let you go downstairs and, and, <laughs> and introduce yourself. And then I realized, I was like, oh, well, that's why the red carpet has been out everywhere. Everybody thought Paul Greco from Terroir was showing up. So it worked out really well for me. Yeah, I mean, I would just run with that. It's, but, you know, to the victor go the spoils. If uh, if that Paul from Terroir hasn't made it up to the Finger Lakes at that point, then uh, you should you should gather all the plaudits that you can in his stead. I know. I really should have leaned harder into that. Um, so, okay, how... I, I, I we, since we we talk regularly, uh, and I know that music plays a role in your everyday life, and at uh, at Red Nude in particular, where you blast music during harvest and throughout probably most of the year too. How do you sort of maintain a, a, a relationship with music at a high enough level such that it's satisfying for you throughout throughout your your everyday life. And that, and then we should get into talking about the Smith a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, at work, 
music is just a constant. Uh, you're always listening to music, uh, always listening to different music. I think that's a key thing to say, right? We're not uh, falling into a trap of listening to the same things over and over again. It's very, it's always intentional listening, or at least what I'm doing is intentional. I'm not like it, asking the seller employees to do the same sort of listening that I'm doing, but I'm putting things on because I want to hear them because I'm trying to engage with them and they feel right for the the mood. Uh, and I think that's a key part of it uh, for me that, that still feels satisfying because it gives me, you know, the seller is a big space and we're pretty much left to our own devices for better or worse. So it's a good, you know, six to eight hours a day outside of harvest that I'm able to listen to music in a real thoughtful, intentional way as part of my job. Uh, and then I, I have to say, for me, the other thing is definitely podcasts, right? Like listening to podcasts about music, uh, smart podcasts about music is very much on my drive to and from work, the way that kind of fills in some of the academic side of my music uh, interest for, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, along with like reading reviews and things like that. I've got a, I've got a 40 minute drive each way. So I try and make the most of it uh, with uh, thoughtful speakers. So I, I know that we are both avid listeners of Popcast. So shout out to John Caramonica, Karen Gans, Joe Coscarelli, Lindsay Zolad, Ben Cesario. Love the podcast. Uh, we're coming <laughs> the, for the you. The OG Ben Ratliff. <laughs> oh, Ben Ratliff. How could I forget? He was another one of my teachers in graduate school. Um, so we're coming after all of you. you, you we're gonna we're gonna get you on a, a Northern Music Odyssey one one of these days. Um, and Kelby, you'll have to come back for that. What are some other music podcasts that you're checking out? Uh, big fan of Switched On Pop. And that's one that uh, kind of I stumbled into a couple of years ago and really have enjoyed. Uh, really like Object of Sound. Uh, I'm trying to think uh, some of the other ones that have kind of popped through my my time as a, as a listener. Uh, but, uh, you know, the podcast is the one that... Uh, Throughout the years, I mean, I remember listening to that my first harvest at Fox Run. So that was Ben Ratliff leading it in 2009. Uh, and I remember being devastated when it disappeared and then thrilled when it came back uh, with Cara Monica heading it up. Uh, and then on like a classical music side, uh, I do love uh, the uh, the Sticky Notes podcast, if anyone knows that one. That's a great uh, sort of like deep dive into various pieces of uh, classical music one at a time. Yeah, I, I'm. I don't have a jazz podcast that I, that I go to with any frequency. I've I've checked a couple of them out, but in general, have not been satisfied. So if you if you come across one that you like, let me know. Uh, I'll have to check out Sticky Notes. I I don't know that one, but it's funny. The New York Times podcast is. I I listen to almost everyone. If I if I miss one, it's by accident, and. I think friends of mine and family, even if the conversation of music comes up, pop music in particular, and I start talking about whoever, just the the modern pop artist of the day, I find that people are surprised at how much sort of intellectual detail it's possible to go into about these artists. And and I I remind people I'm like you have no idea. I mean, these music journalists at the absolute highest level. Are are going down such deep rabbit holes, you know, on the subjects of Ariana Grande and uh, you know uh, 
I mean, Taylor Swift, Lady Gaga, everyone, Dua Lipa, um, you know, just we, we can keep it modern or we can we can throw it back. I mean, it is a treasure trove of just real discourse on the subject of pop music. And it's it's one of the more fun conversations to have with that level of detail, because here you are talking about what the masses of people like, and then you're able to take that and put it under a microscope and and really get into it. I'm curious as to like, how do you take in pop music with that sort of intellectual edge? Um, certainly, you know, the, the podcasts are always a key part of that. I think I often end up thinking about it probably as you do as well, it through the lens of wine, because there's so much that can be said about music and genres and the post genre and different modes of uh, consuming music and trends in music and how much that actually maps on to a lot of things in the wine world and trends that happen in wine. And when they come up and go away and the personalities involved and, you know, different ways of uh, how we engage with wine or try wine and how it's responding as a, you know, as a physical medium basically to, or as a sensorial medium to uh, the internet age. You know, there's a lot of overlap there that uh, I find, at least for myself, I'm always fascinated to think about like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, what's going to be the, the Spotify core of the wine world. Like, you know, what's, what's, what's that for the next three years? It's probably like all of the crazy, uh, uh, good for you, like clean wine sorts of things that are, that are currently bubbling up and will probably all be gone in three years. <laughs> yeah. And what, what let's, um, I want, let's get granular on that for a second in terms of the masses of people, what in your experience, either from, from your own, your own wines, Red Nude or KJR, or the Finger Lakes, or New York in general, or just what do you what are you noticing, um, especially throughout the last year? Because the pandemic, you know, for as much as it has completely and horrifically sucked, has been sort of interesting to look at both wine and music trends. So I'm curious, what do you what do you notice? What what have you noticed in terms of people's drinking habits, um, or listening habits, and what do you see coming up next? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, I think we all know that people have been drinking more, uh, and that is not necessarily a good thing. I mean, in a, in a bottom line way, I suppose it could be, but uh, we're never uh, here for people, you know, that's, it's the big, the big thing that is always a struggle as a winemaker is the fact that you make something that can be abused. Uh, so we're not about that. But we have noticed uh, in the last year, people are also drinking better than they were in the past. They're drinking uh, more interesting wines from across our portfolio, a lot of trading up, a lot of, I mean, people have time on their hands is, is I think one of the big things that's happened. So they have a chance not just to try a wine, but to maybe try a slightly better version of the wine, maybe read some reviews of it, maybe check out what the, the website for the winery says about the wine and try and understand a little bit more. I mean, even in visitation here at the tasting room, uh, that's gone through the roof as well uh, in the last year. I guess maybe by pure numbers, it's gone down. But in terms of uh, engagement in the tasting room, people are, when they're here, they've been taking more time. They've been trying better wines, buying uh, some of our more you know reserve or single vineyard bottles that are the, the flagships of what we're uh, trying to accomplish here. Uh, and I think that's been 
it, it certainly is the winemaker. It's incredibly rewarding to see because those are the wines I want people to to get a handle on. You're right. People have a little bit more time, and some of those people also have saved a little bit of money too, just for obvious reasons. There's just less to do and less to spend it on. Um, I'm curious. I had sort of a, a thought recently that I, I keep repeating to myself in my head or to whoever will listen to me and enter, uh, humor me, which is something that jazz music and New York wines, and we could even dial this further to say like New York or Finger Lakes Rieslings have in common. And that is that the only time <laughs> people talk about them is when intellectuals want to flex. So it's like, you know, New York wines and jazz always been sort of fringe music in terms of fandom. So I just imagine a person, you, you, you somehow the subject of jazz comes up and, and the, the regular sort of basic intellectual will just nod their heads and be like, yes, mm-hmm, yeah, Mingus, yes, Mingus was a genius. Yep, Bird, Diz, mm-hmm. Oh, Finger Lakes Riesling, yeah, Herman J. Weimer, yes, please. And then if you try to keep the conversation going a little bit longer, they get awful quiet or walk away. So I'm kind of curious as to how you think, if at all, the pandemic has nudged New York wine into a more mainstream way of thinking, perhaps because people, many people ordered wine on the internet for the first time. So they were able to get New York wine in a place where they maybe couldn't have it before. And how do we sort of work with that in conjunction with the fact that Riesling is always going to be a tough sell, kind of just like jazz or just like, you know, really geeky avant-garde kind of pop music. So if Riesling is the most recognizable thing about the Finger Lakes and New York State by proxy because the Finger Lakes is the largest region um, doing the most volume, what are your thoughts on that as an identity for, for New York state wine moving forward, given that it is still fringe and that it, it's always a tough sell. And I'm noticing, you know, each year there's a little bit more Riesling for sale on like the Cornell classifieds. Whereas once upon a time, it was harder to get those, that good premium fruit. Yeah, I, it's, it is interesting. I, I feel like I like this analogy because it feels like I'm waiting for, you know, the, the Riesling is dead articles to be written. Like the, nonstop stream of them about jazz music, classical music, uh, when there's still tons of interesting things happening in all of these worlds. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I'm kind of conflicted. I mean, Riesling is always going to be a bit of a niche product. Finger Lakes Riesling is always going to be even more niche. Uh, but at the same time, uh, at least for many of us, sales are growing. You know, it's, it's a complicated pattern when you're talking about, uh, access to fruit because there's it's stepwise after something gets planted how long until it really kicks on and then you get a glut of planting because people are looking for Riesling and then everyone thinks that Riesling's dying because there's wine on the bulk market or there are grapes on the bulk market and it's like well no it's because 100 acres went in and three years ago and you know it takes time to build the market up for that uh, in both in wineries and then out in the in the wider wine world uh, I guess I like having a signature grape uh, for the region uh, or a signature identity. Uh, I think we're so unknown in most of the wine world that it really helps clarify our message when we can come with one or two grapes and a really concise 
take home point, even for industry professionals. You know, you I've gone and worked in the market in London, and you're there for uh, a few days and tasting with people. And there's, you know, they kind of know Finger Lakes and Riesling, but I think we're, we often fall into the trap of thinking, oh, well, of course people, if they know Finger Lakes, they know Riesling. And like, you know, that's, that's just not the case. There's still a lot of uh, potential there to, to hammer home that point. I mean, we don't need it to be New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, you know, that's, that's taken to the nth degree, but uh, there's, it's such a rallying cry for us that I think it's something to, to really embrace. That's sort of funny how you say, oh yeah, I know the Finger Lakes Riesling. It reminds me of that, uh, one of those YouTube videos, shit New Yorkers say that I think Alana Glazer, uh, put out a few years ago and it was just like talking about the Astoria neighborhood. Oh yeah. I know Astoria, the beer garden. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 (laughs) There was a time when, uh, Astoria was not as well known or popular and, and just everyone went over there, you know, once in their life to go to the famous beer garden. Um, well, what do you think that it was – was that the smart thing to do the, a few years ago, plant 100 more acres of Riesling? Or is it – are there sites that would be so good that would merit planting more Riesling when when there's maybe enough and – or also when we know that there is growing interest in particular in red wine from Cabernet Franc and other red grapes that kind of make these light, snappy wines that I know you and I like to drink? Yeah. I mean it's – you know, there – Part of the problem is that we know so little about the Finger Lakes as a wine region. You know, that's just, and it's going to take decades and centuries to really know a lot about where the, the best sites are. Um, you know, arguably our best site at Red Newt uh, is one that to the naked eye doesn't look like much of anything. You know, it's not, not all that special. And that's, you know, you only find out by trialing things on it. And then you find out it's really good. And if you planted the wrong thing on it, it it's going to take until you replant it with something else to realize what it could be. That uh, that's especially tricky with average sites, I would say. Right, like if you're if you have like a ho hum site for Cab Franc, like there's no reason to pull it out and put something else in without somehow having an inkling that like oh wait this might actually be the best Gamay site in the Finger Lakes. We just didn't realize it. You know that's that's really speculative. Uh, but you know the other problem that. I see, and I guess it's not a problem, but something that I find frustrating is that you see a lot of Finger Lakes wineries that uh, don't truly want to work distribution or wholesale and really expand their footprint. They're happy selling most everything through their their front door where the margins are higher and, you know, just to accounts around upstate that they can ship to, you know, maybe one other state, uh, I don't even, we don't need to go as far as export. Like, you know, the, even just to other States around the U S there's so little Finger Lakes wine making it out, uh, that to me as someone kind of as a Finger Lakes booster and wanting to see the region gain more and more prestige. Part of that is getting the wine into people's hands and we need more wine to be able to do that to some extent. And we need people who are willing to, to go out and try and sling it around the, around the country. That is one thing that uh, the internet has been good for, certainly, is especially in the last year, people people experiencing these wines and things like Open Local Wine Night coming up and all these different deals that are going on. And you you 
click a button and two days later, these wines that are super refreshing and lifted show up at your door that otherwise you could not go to even a decent wine shop down the street from wherever it is that you live to get them. So I, I, it's funny. I wish, I wish we could look at some data on that subject. It, it might be out there. It might not be. I don't know. But anecdotally, that does feel good to me um, in terms of what I've seen and the emails that I get and people that reach out to me asking, how do I get my hands on some of this stuff? Um, you know, Riesling, sparkling wines, reds, people are definitely interested. Um, so I don't know. I think um, oddly, it, it feels weird to say this, but it also feels good. I think I think we're in 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 a pretty okay place right now, um, with with some amount of light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, I would agree, and I, I think you know, in in terms of music and wine, the same thing that I've loved about music in the last year is what has made I think wine all the more interesting as well, which is really increased accessibility to it. Uh, you know, as someone who lives in the Finger Lakes. Uh, we don't have a huge number of shows going through our neck of the woods all that often. Uh, I mean, there's tons of music here and amazing music, but if there's an artist that you really like uh, and you like following, usually you're going to have to travel probably to New York city to see them, maybe Toronto. Sometimes they swing. If they have like an overnight, they'll stop at Rochester or something like that. Uh, And in the last year, I know at least for me, and this is maybe selfish, but like I've loved live streaming concerts. That's been like the joy of the last year for me is getting to see Kurt Elling on a, you know, um, do a Christmas concert or see Cecile McClure and Savant do, you know, like a live stream with from her living room with a piano. Like the access, I've seen more live shows in the last year uh, than I've ever seen in my life. Uh, It's just because I've been able to stream them. And I feel like that because people are buying wine online and trying things online and seeing it on Instagram and can find it and ship it to their house easily. The same thing's true for wine in the last year, especially as people haven't been able to, you know, haven't been uh, as beholden to what is in their local restaurant or their local wine shop. Uh, you know, not, not to, to hate on either of those things because they're incredibly important uh, conduits to consumers and educators themselves, but this has definitely opened it up some. So let's, um, I guess let's, as we're just hitting the hour mark now, let's close by talking about your work with the Smith Opera House in Geneva. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about a guy uh, known as Scott LaFaro. So what do you, what uh, talk, talk about um, your role or the work that you've done with the Smith. And in particular, I think this is how I initially discovered that you were also a music guy, which was the the annual concert or the sometime annual concert dedicated to the memory of Scott LaFaro. Yeah. So Scott LaFaro, Geneva native, uh, well, born in New Jersey, but raised in Geneva. Uh, amazing, uh, incredibly influential jazz bassist uh, with notably with Bill Evans, uh, you know, just some, uh, some amazing recordings and passed away far too young in a car accident uh, just outside of Geneva. Uh, I was and, reading just in prep for this. He literally only played bass for seven years. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. It's absolutely, I, I, he was saxophone, right? Didn't he come at it from saxophone? I, th- I think he played a few different instruments in school, yeah. um, you know, but settled on bass eventually, but yeah, seven years. Yeah. It just like, just like picked it up when he was at Ithaca college and like be, became like the master of it in no time. It's crazy. Uh, so uh, we had had a, uh, Oh, I would say, I want to say 2012 or 2013, there was a, 
we had an organization in Geneva that I volunteered on called Geneva Night Out. And it was the first Friday of every month, kind of like an arts and uh, collaboration. Artists would be either performing or bring their artwork to different retail shops. And, you know, this is back when we were trying to convince people that downtown Geneva was like a fun place to be and that you could like walk around at night and shop and get a bite to eat. Which now, you know, the, the, the organization did so well, it basically made itself uh, obsolete, which is the best sort of organization sometimes. Uh, and one of the nights we did was a Scott LaFaro celebration night uh, in his memory because he's not really wasn't really well known in Geneva anymore. Uh, how important he was, what his legacy was. So we did that one year, dedicated a street name to him. Uh, and the next year I thought, why don't we have, we should have a concert. We should have like a celebration concert. Uh, and we, you know, really try and make the, his memory a living memory in Geneva again. So the Smith Opera House is this stunningly beautiful. I mean, it cannot be overstated how beautiful uh, of a space it is from the 1890s, 1400 seat theater uh, that was saved from demolition basically in the 1970s by a group of dedicated Genevans uh, and have just poured money into it, poured support into it to totally, I mean, anyone who's been in that space is just gobsmacked by how beautiful it is. Uh, so we had the concert there, uh, surprisingly big hit. We had Gatman Joan perform with his uh, quintet and then uh, came back the next year and had another concert Uh uh, this is terrible. Oh, we had uh, had a, actually a trio from IC, uh, 13 Degrees, uh, who did an amazing concert, uh, kind of very faithful to Bill Evans. Uh, and then a few other concerts since then. Uh, uh, Eddie Gomez was one of the, the, the uh, highlights. And uh, in doing this, I got connected to the Smith Opera House because obviously the concerts were running through the Opera House. Uh, I got dragged onto the board of the Opera House and then made the secretary of the board uh, a couple of years ago, uh, which uh, reminds me a lot of being in college because I never liked taking notes before and I still don't like taking notes, but here I am doing it again. Uh, but loving the Smith and loving uh, that it's this like cultural gem in the middle of downtown Geneva and in the middle of the Finger Lakes uh, that, you know, outside of a pandemic uh, brings in amazing concerts of all different types and different programming of all different types. Uh, and I cannot tell you what a joy it is to be on the board and see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we're going to be able to start doing movies again in the theater in a couple of weeks. Uh, we've got, you know, requests for show bookings coming up. Uh, you know, the, the future looks really bright for the Smith and for the Finger Lakes. Very cool. So I, I'm going to end selfishly this by questing you with something. So, Shoot. I, uh, for, for, uh, the forthcoming business, Paul Brady wine opening in beacon, New York, hopefully in September, maybe before, uh, will be a, a, a New York wine specialty shop and wine bar, um, with, with a few other sprinklings of wines and beers and spirits from, from our Northern neighbors available at the bar, um, with this Northern theme and, and being that I come at it from music as well. Uh, I, I've got some jazz autographs that are framed of some incredible musicians from a few places in particular that are important to, to me in terms of this Northern, uh, North American climate of wine. So I've got, uh, a musician from mu musician, uh, Michigan, I've got a musician from Canada. And so now I need, I need to complete that triangle with, uh, 
an autographed uh, frame, photograph, something or other uh, of a musician from New York. I really want that musician to be Scott LaFaro. So in your travels and your dealings, if you are in contact at all with anybody who might have a, an in as to an autograph signature from Scott LaFaro, I am in the market and it would be up on the wall at my place alongside from, from Michigan, Kenny Burrell, from Canada, Oscar Peterson, and Scott LaFaro is my, is my goal to have that hanging on the wall as a, as a tribute to, uh, to an incredibly great uh, Northern jazz musician. So you think, can you, can you, can you make that happen for me, Kelby? I can certainly try. I mean, uh, with, with the concert, his, his sister is the one who I always deal with. She's based in uh, SoCal now, Helene, and she's one of the nicest people that you will ever email with uh, and is so passionate and so excited that these concerts happen. I'll, uh, I'll put a word in with her and see, uh, see what, what I can turn up, especially because we, uh, we've had to take two years off here with, with the pandemic. Uh, it's usually the first week of April that we have the celebration concert. So uh, we'll be raring to go for next April. Amazing. Well, thank you, Calby, and uh, rest in peace, Scott LaFaro. And uh, much more to talk about, Calby, uh, in terms of music and wine. So uh, I look forward to having you back. Good to catch up today. And uh, I don't know, any, anything quick to plug? What's coming up? What wines are you passionate about that you want people to check out? Uh, I mean, rosé is coming out, and uh, the 2020 vintage of rosé uh, is looks like one that's going to drink spectacular for the first six months. But then, please, 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 sit on it in your cellar for a few years before you open it up again. All right, easy. Look for Red Newt rosé and KJR rosés, and see you next time. Thanks, Calby. Thank you.